So, so trust me, I, I get it. You thought and had every good reason to believe that you were rid of me. <laughs> uh, so I'll, I'll try to be brief. You know, so, uh, as I was uh, coming in, uh, Paul Bunce warned me that uh, uh, Travis and Marty have really worked hard to build up the membership and I'm not supposed to screw it up. <laughs> but I will say, uh, um, you know, last, last Sunday, Travis introduced us to this sweet, albeit appalling, little song of his childhood. <laughs> uh, you know, about uh, Jesus in a pretty little box that, you know, got let out on occasion. And it reminded me, I mean, this made me think of a slightly religious version of the old joke about Prince William in a box, or Prince Albert in a box, or whoever it was, the tobacco company. But, so I got to thinking about what, what cute, appalling little songs from my childhood that I think of. And keep in mind, when I grew up, it uh, was sort of in an appalling time of its own. And so uh, of, of that sort of irreverent, um, miscreant season, uh, this is the best I could come up with. It was a, every church camp uh, was animated by, by this. I don't care if it rains or freezes, long as I've got my plastic Jesus riding on the dashboard of my car. For all my trials and tribulations, I will travel every nation. Me and plastic Jesus will go far. You know, I think that there were uh, 10 or 12,000 verses. Uh, <laughs> uh, each one more offensive than the, the prior. And, uh, and it ultimately got down to, I don't care if it rains scary, as long as I've got magnetic Mary. <laughs> well, I will <laughs> They were the 60s, what can I say? <laughs> it, it is fun to be back in front of you, um, trusting that you're kind. <laughs> Once upon a time, writes Barbara Brown Taylor, uh, there was a woman who set out to discover the meaning of life. First, she read everything she could get her hands on, history, philosophy, psychology, religion. And while she became in the process a very smart person, nothing she read gave her the answer for which she was seeking. She found other smart people and asked them about the meaning of life, but while their discussions were <coughs> routinely lively, and long, no two of them agreed on the same thing, and so still she had no answer. Finally, she put all of her belongings into storage, set off in search of the meaning of life. She went to South America, she went to India, everywhere she went. People told her they didn't know the meaning of life, but they had heard about someone who did. Only they weren't quite sure where he lived. She asked about him in every country on earth until finally deep in the Himalayas, someone told her how to reach his house, a tiny little hut, 
perched on the side of the mountain just below the tree line. She climbed and climbed to reach his front door, and when she finally got there with knuckles so cold they hardly worked, she knocked. Yes, said a kindly, old-looking man who opened it. She thought she would die of happiness. I've come halfway around the world, she said, to ask you this one question. What is the meaning of life? Please come in, he said, and have some tea. No, she said, no, no I mean, no, thank you. I, but I didn't come all this way for tea. I came for an answer. Won't you please tell me what is the meaning of life? We shall have tea, he said. And so she gave up and came inside. And while he was brewing the tea, she caught her breath and began telling him about all the books she had read, all the people she had met, all the places she had seen. The old man listened, which was just as well because the visitor didn't leave any room for him to reply. And as she talked, he placed a fragile teacup in her hand and began to pour. She was so busy talking that she didn't notice when the teacup was full and so the old man just kept pouring until the tea ran over the side and began to burn her hand and she said, stop, what are you doing? Can't you see that it's full stop? There's no more room. And the man said, even so. You come here wanting something from me, but what am I to do? There's no more room in your cup. Come back when it's empty, and, and then we'll talk. Come back when it's empty. And then we'll talk. Nicodemus was a, a man who was caught in a storm. And he too was a man of fullness, punctuality, control, order, <laughs> reason. But he was being blown mercilessly along the street, trying the best he could to keep his hat from becoming a kite and his coat down so that the rain didn't soak him to the skin, wind and water. It was a disturbing, uncomfortable situation for such a procedural man to be in, and it was all in his head. Or maybe more properly said, it was all in his soul. He was a Pharisee of the Jews, we're told, a leader with power and responsibility, a, a dedication to doing things right and knowing right when he saw it. But perhaps Nicodemus was also something more. The two verses that serve as a kind of transition word between the, the last story and this morning's story say that while Jesus was in Jerusalem for the Passover, many gave their allegiance to him when they saw the signs that he performed. And Later on in the book, John 
mentions that even among those in authority, a number believed in him but wouldn't acknowledge him on account of the Pharisees for fear of being banned from the synagogue. I don't know, maybe Nicodemus was also one of those. One persuaded, afraid. And perhaps that was the source of the storm, conflict between who he was and who he might be. Well, whether or not that's true, and whoever he was, he was blown to Jesus during the night and all its veiling mystery, confusion. <clears throat> Nicodemus comes to Jesus, we're told, in the nighttime, in the dark, in more ways than one. A teacher, he began searching for all of the kinds of answers with it, which he was already acquainted or not. And Jesus interrupts to say, let, let me tell you three things. You have to be born again from above. You have to have spirit, and the spirit blows wherever it pleases. I have a clue what that means. Uh, and how does that happen? Well, I really don't know, but a couple of thoughts come to mind. I suspect that we accomplish our rebirth in precisely the same way that we accomplish our original birth, which is to say we didn't have much hand in it. You were floating around, minding your own business, until one day you got squeezed out. <laughs> It didn't require great study on your part, diligent calculations, or refinement, or technique. Your primary role was simply to land in receiving hands and take the breath which was slapped into you. And spirit, that invigorating mercurial presence and power of God, the world was not blessed, we are told, because God finally relinquished God's blessing under human pressure. What we are told is that God loved this world so much that God gave grace as gift, spirit as gift, birth as gift, belovedness as an intrinsic truth about our being about who we are. Now let me digress for a moment to acknowledge how obvious that likely sounds. And perhaps we can emphasize it too often. I suppose it's possible to focus so intently on God's love for us that we forget to examine the manifold ways we fail and forsake that love. Take it cheaply for granted. But as I look around town, read the papers about the world, listen in on congressional debates and coffee shop conversations, as I read my Facebook <coughs> news feed, watch the Twitter bombs fall, 
Watch the myriad ways, both interpersonal and international, that we put each other relentlessly down, demean and degrade, deny and ignore the divinity woven throughout our humanity. I choose to believe that perhaps the truth is we haven't heard it enough. The truth about who we are, at least as far as God is concerned. I keep thinking that if we had a better understanding of and appreciation for God's love of us, it would have to change our understanding of and appreciation for each other. But we, like Nicodemus, have trouble understanding. We're bright, intelligent, practical, often principled minds. Give us a book, teach us a technique, give us time to practice, we can pull this thing off. By the way, are there illustrated instructions? It's the way we live our lives, even the lives of our spirit. We make our plans, we take our notes, we make our budget of resources, and we set ourselves to work on prejudice, on injustice, on violence, on hunger, how we will live together. We have our little religious projects that we tinker with like old cars, hoping that sometime or another we'll actually get them running, maybe even finished. We vote, we build our coalitions, we go to workshops, we draft our papers and reason out our responses to the latest objections, trying to get ourselves and maybe our congregation reborn. Somehow something's missing. Something I might suggest like love. Because love involves spilling something out while we tend to be more interested in filling ourselves up. Loving involves giving something away. I mean, just ask God. It was, says the scriptures, while we were yet sinners that God loved us. Loved us, in fact, so much that according to the story, God gave his only son that we might have life. Could be that part of the problem is linguistic. Love, after all, sounds so squishy, doesn't it? So soft, romantic, hands held gently around the campfire singing Kumbaya. But if God's experience and ours, when we're honest, is any indication, biblical love is gritty, rough, pricey. Something perhaps that sounds more akin to cutting someone some slack. Less, I don't know, less marshmallows than mercy. I like that word. Mercy. Love. Cutting someone some slack. Mercy maybe as the present embodiment of Father could use a little mercy now. 
labor fall right slowly on the ground. His work's almost over. It won't be long, won't be around. I love my father. mercy now. My brother use a little mercy now. He's a stranger to freedom, shackled to his fears and his doubts. The pain that he lives in Almost more than living with love. Love my brother. Give you some mercy now. My church and my country could use a little mercy now. As they sink into a poison pit take forever to climb out. They carry the weight of the faithful to follow them down. I love my church and country. They could use some mercy now. Every living thing Use a little mercy now. Only the hand, grace, and the race toward another mushroom cloud. People in power, well, they'll do anything to keep their crown. I love life, life itself. Use mercy now. God so loved the world. God gave, poured out. Grace is gift. Spirit is gift. Birth is gift. Belovedness as an intrinsic truth about our being. Especially our being in community. Belovedness both known and just as importantly shared. But we spend so much time in each other's darkness, shadows, shading the growth of love. here wanting something from me, the wise man told his visitor. What am I to do? There is no more room in your cup. Come back. When you've gotten still enough to feel the cooling of the breeze, quiet enough to hear the rustling back when you've made peace with your limitations and 
yourself to the grace-filled possibilities of life lived in the mercy of each other's keeping. Come back then, and then we'll talk. Perhaps by then you'll be empty enough to fill. Perhaps by then you'll be available enough to the alchemy of the spirit for the raw materials of your soul to be transformed, born again from above. Christ's name we pray. Amen.